everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been live streaming our services on Sundays at 9 a.m. And this past Sunday, April 5th, we had an Ask Me Anything time, or AMA time, with Nick where we asked questions about the sermon, and he had 90 seconds to answer each one. We couldn't get to all of the questions on Sunday, so in this episode, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Nicole Kyle, our music and worship arts director, are following up on them. They cover things from monasticism to expressing the hope of God's glory to assurance of salvation. Today is Good Friday, and we're having a combined service with several local churches at 1 p.m. And this Sunday is Easter, and we're having one service at 9 a.m. You can join us for both of these at highpointchurch.org live. We won't have an AMA time during Good Friday or Easter, but if you have any questions from this episode or the services, please send it to us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. everyone. This is Nicole Kyle. I'm the worship director at High Point Church. I'm here with Nick Gibson. Nick, you want to say hi? Hey. <laughs> and we're here to go through some of the Ask Me Anything questions from this past Sunday, which was April 5th. Uh, the questions that we weren't able to get to, and some of them that we did get to, but we didn't have as much time as we would have wanted. 90 seconds isn't that much time. So we're going um, we're gonna to jump into some of those questions, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. Anything you need to say before we do that? I don't think so. Okay. Who knows? You know, just as our pastor, maybe you had some compelling words you needed to get out. <laughs> maybe you just haven't had enough of an audience for the past people who want to listen to you speak. Okay. Let's just jump right in. So we're going to start with... Um, the first question, this is a question that we got to talk about on Sunday, but um, there's a lot more that could have been said. So this first question was from McKenna, and her question was, should we pursue more hardship and suffering in this life in order to share more in Christ's glory? And how does this relate to verses about God desiring joy and blessing over our lives? Yeah, so I, th- I think there's two things one I said on Sunday morning, which is that you shouldn't pursue suffering needlessly or without purpose. So when we when we enter into suffering for Christ's sake, it's because of one of his purposes, not just because suffering is in some way just good for us. In some way, maybe it is in terms of killing the flesh or causing us to face difficulty and so on, that, that strengthens us. But for the most part, th- th- there's plenty of Good, the right kind of suffering in life to strengthen us that we don't have to go looking for it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I think there's that's important. I think the other thing to recognize is, is that um, the de- desiring of joy and blessing in our lives is not in any sense mutually exclusive to suffering. And I think that's right. something else that Christians have to kind of get in their minds. That you can yeah. be presently suffering and experience joy and also be experiencing blessing. Right. Right. Now, yeah, I, I, think, I, I do think, however, that when one reads – sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think that's the part that, at least when I was sitting listening to you talk on Sunday, that's the part I wished we had more time to talk about. So anyway, go ahead. Continue. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that when one reads the Old Testament, that God makes numerous promises about blessing that are specifically related to well-being and specifically that people who follow the Lord – in the state, Old Testament state of Israel, would not experience many of the things that are normal in present suffering and that are outlined in the New Testament that Christians suffer. So, um, for example, uh, pestilence, 
like disease in the land is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, issues with crops and animals, um, f- a family infertility that the Israelites w- wouldn't have any infertile women if they were faithful. And yet that's not a promise in the new Testament. So in the new Testament, especially in Romans eight, as we discuss here, it talks about all the things that we could think could separate us from the love of Christ. And it's basically every kind of suffering human beings experience. Yeah. Natural and special. And so there is no promise here in Romans eight that in the, as part of the new Testament church, that God is going to have that kind of relationship where we are his nation and God displays his blessing in our nation. That is the people who are Christians by giving us a kind of blessing of temporal success. Mm-hmm. Instead, what seems to be the case is that, like it says in verse 16 or 17 in chapter eight, that if we are really heirs of Christ and co heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, that is demonstrated by us sharing in his sufferings. Right, right. And then in, in order that we might share in his glory. So the dynamic is the dynamic of the cross for Christians. Mm-hmm. And that blessing comes through that just as, as there is no person who's ever been a human being who is more blessed than Jesus the Christ. Right. He is the forever blessed one, even though he suffered greatly and was killed. And Christians have to think in terms of their blessing and their joy that way. Yeah. I think that, so uh, this was a number of years ago. This was actually while, um, some of you might know this, but for a time, my husband Scott and I lived with Nick and Alexi. And this was while we were living with you that this was going on for me. I was reading a book about um, suffering and grieving. And I was dealing with some stuff that had happened in my life when I was 12. And I remember getting to a point in the book where the woman wrote, until you recognize that the cup of joy is the cup of sorrow or that the cup of sorrow is the cup of joy, you will you will fail to drink it. And that at that point for me, I think it clicked because, and this gets into some stuff that you've been talking about a good bit recently too, Nick, about being becoming unrepressed in our emotions and in what we experience and feel. And I think that there's there is an element where, if we are going through something that is hard and painful and we don't allow ourselves to feel it, we're not just repressing that emotion, but we are also in some ways numbing all of our extent or our capabilities of feeling emotions. And so I, that coupled with, I've heard you say before, um, I think you said this a bit on Sunday and in other sermons that any suffering that we go through, if we don't allow God to give purpose to it or to redeem it, it's wasted. And so I think some of these things in my mind just coincide in that if we if we just want to avoid the, the suffering that is actually going on in our lives, and if we don't recognize it for what it is, we we won't get to experience the joy that God does have for us on the other side of it, whether that's how he's going to redeem it or things he's going to reveal about himself to us through it or ways he's going to bring beauty out of it. Um, so I, the, all of those things were kind of stirring together yeah. for me as right. you were talking about these things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the book of Job, the devil says, the Satan says, Skin for skin, a man will do anything for his own life, right? He believes that a human being in the state of nature, as human beings normally exist, the highest good is their own life and well-being, their health, right? And so, therefore, Mm -hmm. 
the Satan who in the context of Job is trying to demonstrate that people don't really love God for God. They really just love God to the extent to which he gives them stuff and gives them health and life. And so Job becomes the ultimate example because God has given him so much. Right. And God says that Job loves him for him. And Satan's like, that's crazy. And so after Job has destroyed all all of Job's wealth and all of the things and people he loves, that has killed all his children, God's like, are you are you satisfied that he loves me for me? And and Satan's like, no, no, skin for skin. Any man will do anything to save his own life. Now, if 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 you live that way, then the idea that the cup of suffering is the cup of joy is a completely nonsensical statement. It's like talking about a married bachelor. It doesn't <laughs> make any sense at all. Because by definition, your health and well-being relative to your health your life, mm-hmm. your physical life is the most important thing. And so living in healthy life and relative comfort and enjoyment is is the good life. Mm-hmm. And Christians have always rejected that. Christians have always said redemption right. is the most important thing. And who you are in relationship to faithfulness to the God who is good is the most important thing. So better to be murdered for fa- for your faith Right, well, but that by definition, the the Christian concept of martyrdom, by definition, turns all of that on its head. Right, that it's better to be killed painfully in terrible suffering in faith, than to deny that faith and get your life. Mm-hmm. Right, and so any Christian that doesn't grapple with that, um, that doesn't believe that the way, <clears throat> sorry, the way of the cross is the way they get to go. is going to have real trouble with this. Yeah. Um, I have a question that's kind of like pivoting a little bit, but I thought of this as I was reading through this question. So the first part says, should we pursue more hardship and suffering in this life in order to share more in Christ's glory? Which made me think of ascetics or um, monks who choose like a um, to live in solitude or really diminished in in not diminished, but like saying no to a lot of comforts in the way of life that they're going choosing to live. Like yeah. how how do you how does that play into this question and conversation? Um on one level, Christian faith has always rejected asceticism. In a certain way. So, for example, in Colossians, the book of Colossians, it says that the harsh treatment of the body is actually incapable of really ending sensual desire. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that you could be hard on your body and that will make you holy is false. Yeah. And in the book in the from the 5th century on the priesthood by um, by John Chrysostom, written by one of the Gregories, I believe it was, he says... He, people are like, you're such a great monk, you'll be a great bishop. So become a bishop. And Chrysostom's response is, you have no idea what a monk is. He said, I went to the cloister because I left the world because I was weak. Hmm. And by taking away all the world's distractions, mm-hmm. I could operate in a certain kind of holiness because the temptations just weren't there. Right. He said, but if you pull me out of the cloister and throw me into Constantinople, with all the intrigues, with everything that's going on, and you make me the bishop, I'm going to go to hell because hmm. I'm not strong enough for that. I went to the cloister because I was weak. The cloister yeah. didn't make me 
even though I sleep on a rock and I, it doesn't make me godly. Right. Right. And I think Christians have historically held that view. However, <clears throat> there is a certain amount of austerity that can make you tougher. And there is a certain amount of worship of your comfort that can make you soft. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, I know people who just can't concentrate if the temperature changes by five degrees. Right. Because they're so used to like controlled temperature environments and air conditioning, blah, 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 that they just can't even, you know, if it's, if the temperature fluctuates by five degrees. So, so, you know, in that sense, there's a certain amount of austerity and the rejection of comfort that I think is positive. Right. Right. So for example, the Bible encourages periodic fasting. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, once a week or, you know, at, at certain intervals, you just don't eat for a while. Mm-hmm. Because that periodic recognition of how of 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 that kind of austerity, like in a, for a short period of time in a specific kind of way to turn the heart towards God and away from the world right. is helpful. But the the asceticism, in some sense, in the ancient world among the monks, was a demonstration of their devotion to Christ. Mm-hmm. That they were willing to give up everything. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons why the very early Christians like St. Anthony and some of the guys who like stood on pedestals in the desert for 20 years, right. you know, yeah. some of the re- reasons why they did that is because they lived in a maximally sensualist Rome. Yeah. The Greco-Roman world at that time was so, um, you know, I, I can't remember if it was Seneca or which of the Roman writers said, a chaste wife cannot be found. Hmm. Like, hmm. I mean, he, he could say at least colloquially that there was no such thing as a faithful marriage. At that yeah. point in the Roman Empire, you know, I think place, sometimes we think about like that. Oh, sorry. I think sometimes we think about like our culture, and I wonder, like, is is it was it worse? But I don't think people would say that right now <laughs> in our culture. Right, right, yeah. No, relative to certain times in the history of the world, no, we aren't the worst culture ever. We are different than any culture ever in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, we may be worse and in some ways better, I suppose. I, yeah, when people say our culture is getting worse, we're getting worse in the conservative sense, in mm-hmm. the sense that many of the achievements that created civilization we're giving up on because we think there's other things that replace them, yeah, like the stability of families and the and the commitment of marriage and things like that. I th- actually think that's very true that we are declining. But I mean, I, th- I think that over the last 40 years, we've well, over the last hundred years, we've gotten on net better on racism, for example. Right. And I think on net better on sexism, for example. So like the social justice warrior stuff, I really do think some of that stuff's improved. Yeah. And that is non-trivial. I mean, that's, a, that's big stuff. But I also think some of the structural sort of secondary moralities, and I also think in the realm of personal morality, we have our standards have declined in, in mm-hmm. the United States, for example. Well, it sounds like anyway, you were- the point is, is that with yeah, these exactly. earliest- yeah, with these early aesthetics, like they were intentionally doing it as a witness, right? And that's different to say I'm gonna be, I'm gonna stand on a pole for 20 years just to be closer to God because I'm gonna increase my suffering. That would be kind of dumb. But what they were trying to do is to say I don't need any of this stuff. I don't, I don't, I don't need it. That's not what makes life life. I'm gonna do something really weird. And what happened was with those, I can't remember the names of the saints that like stood on these poles, Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands and thousands of people streamed to the desert to hear them preach. Right. And they didn't preach, you should be on a pole. They preached, turn from the world and turn to Christ and do it in your life. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
Do you think that we have, because now the next question that I'm thinking is, do we, do we, or should we have examples of people doing that sort of a thing today in relationship to our culture? I think you come across that every once in a while. I know, I know some people who have live on 10% of their income so they can give 90% of it away. Um, I, I know that there are lots of missionaries who just go to places where they're unwanted and people are awful to them and they want to serve Christ there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there are some examples of that, um, but I don't think it's a very, it never has been a very popular route in life. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's move to another question. And, and I think, I think it's important to say that, that, that the gospel doesn't, I think it's important to say the gospel doesn't command it of us. Right. The gospel says that we have to not be in love with the world, but it doesn't say that we have to engage in asceticism. In fact, mm-hmm. Colossians says it's very easy to go astray by engaging in asceticism, what it, but fighting worldliness is the biblical command. Right. Okay. Let's go to the next question. Um, this is from two, two related questions from Aaron and Anita. So the first one is sharing in God's glory is really abstract is really abstract and hard for me to grasp. Could you describe how humans will share in God's future glory? So actually that's all of what it is. Do you want me to say that again? Yeah, I mean sort of. Yeah. No, no, I, I'm reading it right oh, here. Okay. So yeah, I mean I think that I think that it's important to say that no, there's no way that I can explain to you what it means that humans will share in God's future glory, right? Um, the places where God's glory is made manifest, like revealed to someone, it's either done like in a very small amount or for a very short period of time in a very limited way. So Jesus goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses are there. It just says that their clothes are whiter than anything they've ever seen. God speaks out of a cloud. Peter says, can we build mm-hmm. houses here and stay here forever? And then it ends, right? Mm-hmm. And so we know it was something kind of amazing and we don't really know why other than that God was there and Moses and Elijah were there. And then it's over. Okay, Or Moses asks God, let me see your glory, right? Mm-hmm. And God says, well, I'll let all my goodness pass in front of you, which is one of his glories. So he, mm-hmm. he lets like a, a certain amount, a certain kind of his glory. And we find that that, that glory made Moses' face glow so that he had to wear a veil and people couldn't even look upon his face. Right. So one of the things we're supposed to, I think, recognize as Christians is that the glory of God experienced directly in the Old Testament says it would be lethal to human beings. Mm-hmm. And therefore we can't experience it in its pure, absolutely direct form. And so we actually have to be made into a stronger and different kind of creature in order for us to experience it directly. So in one sense, the answer is no. It's also true that I can't explain the glory of God because it is, it's, it's too complicated, mm-hmm. right? The, the glory of God is all of the goodnesses of God and all of the attributes of God all interconnected fully in imperfection and displayed. And I can't even, I can't even begin to do that. All we, all I can ever do in preaching is like talk about one aspect of the goodness of God mm-hmm. or one thing that God has done and a set of implications of that for our present life with a tiny bit we currently understand about it. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing. We're, 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 we're grabbing these tiny little bits. But the point is, is that that, that is sufficient, a sufficient understanding of God's glory. Yeah. But the hope in the glory of God is, is abstract in the sense that it's not yet concrete for us. Mm-hmm. It isn't an abstract thing in the sense that it will always be abstract. It will be the most practical, visceral, direct, non-abstract thing we've ever experienced ultimately. But in the present, the way we relate to it is in a, is in a proportionately abstract way. That's true. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next question I think is a really good follow-up to that, which is then, then in light of that, how can we, the church, express that hope of glory to those around us? So, okay, so let's, let's, let me finish with the God's future glory thing. Um, I do think some of John Piper's books on future, like I think he has a book called Future Grace that he, where he talks more, more about experiencing the glory of God that people might be interested in. I, I also think that we are supposed to see some of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Hmm. Right? The Bible explicitly says that, that Jesus is himself the exact representation of God, that we can see the glory of God in, in the face of Christ. I think that's in, I think that's in, Let's not say it's in Romans. So I can't think of it off the top of my head right now. But the, the point is, is that Jesus is here to display what we need to know about yeah. God, including certain aspects of his glory. So right. the, so studying and knowing Christ and understanding the gospel, that is what he's done and how he saved us in it and so on. Ever, I mean, I, I've hardly ever sat down to study the gospel in the Christ of that gospel in the scriptures and not come away with a certain kind of encouragement, if not like outright being stunned by mm-hmm. the beauty of the glory of God as I've studied about the gospel. So right. in some ways, just knowing more about Christ and knowing more about what he's done in the gospel, and it, it, it will open new vistas as you progress through it of the glory of God. I think how the church can express our hope of the glory to those around us is for Christ to be our greater hope. Yeah. And the only way you can really show that is by valuing Christ and the hope of glory more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So that it matters more than getting the car you want or the house you want or the bride you want or the anything you want. When it, it's clearly displayed to all people, both in the gathered life of the local church and in the individual lives of the Christians and their families, that Jesus is the all-surpassing pleasure in the most valuable thing that there is, such that things that people are longing to get are just they're not idols and they pale in relationship to our true desires. I, I think that comparison right. is one of the only things that makes sense to somebody in the state of worldliness. Hmm. When the things they value so much, we just don't seem to care about it at all. Yeah. I think that makes me think of the passage in is it what is it, Second Corinthians four that talks about comparing our light and momentary troubles and contrasting them with the eternal weight of glory. That's in Romans eight, isn't it? Um well I th- think it's also in Corinthians. Yeah, second Corinthians four seventeen. Yeah. It says our light and momentary troubles, yeah. There it, it Romans eight has a I don't consider our present. Sufferings yeah. worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Very, yeah, very similar statements. Yes, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's the attitude, right? That right in comparison, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, in in Second Corinthians it says that for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us 
and eternal glory that far outweighs them. So in Second Corinthians, the argument is that that through our walking in the way of the cross, we're being right. added into the glory of Christ in a way that's achieving something for us. Yeah. That it's kind of an investment, which I think is a, another way to talk about it. But still the yeah. idea that in Romans, it says they're not worth comparing. Here it's in Second Corinthians, it says that far, the glory far outweighs them. And so mm-hmm. I think by living that way, to, to live like your sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that's coming, or that the light and momentary troubles, and in Second Corinthians, he's talking about terrible things. Yes. He's calling them light and momentary to intentionally get our attention, to call things like cancer and mm-hmm. being imprisoned for years unjustly. Right. And that's what he's calling light and, light and momentary troubles, because they're achieving an eternal glory that far outweighs them. So by comparison, they're late and momentary. I think if we can get, I think what he's trying to do is help us get to that attitude. I think that's what Jesus is always trying to do, to help get us to that attitude. So the display of the glory of God comes from the life of God, which can only come through the, through the, the spiritual death, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm thinking about for this Sunday is how the resurrection of Christ doesn't just make our resurrection possible. It makes our death possible. Mm -hmm. We die in the death of Christ and we really take up our cross and follow him. We've died to this world. Like it says in Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When mm-hmm. we actually kind of come to that real deep attitude, and these things do not matter to us. And we really do look at our sufferings as light and momentary troubles when compared to the eternal glory they're achieving. That displays the glory of God because it shows the worth of God. And showing what right. God is worth to us is probably the best we can do. And then after that, I think godliness is the next most important thing because what is the glory of God, but the character of God displayed and in action. And so mm-hmm. us displaying the character of God in ourselves is the, that is the next best thing. So our valuing of God and our future glory and our hope in him, and then our displaying of the character of God in growing and developing godliness. Yeah. Let's talk about one of those so things. That was another about. question. Um, can you define the courage of Christ? Yeah, the courage of Christ, I think, would be both the courage that is in Christ himself and the courage that comes from Christ himself. So, Jesus was a consummately courageous character and is every time he chooses what's right. It's impossible to find anything in the Gospels, as far as I can tell, that that Jesus chooses out of fear because he's concerned about what's going to happen to him. Mm -hmm. The essence of fear... And the loss of courage and of cowardice is that you don't do what's right because you're afraid about what's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And there's none of that in the Gospels at all, not a, right. a tiny bit. And so when that gets converted to us, when we find our life and death in Christ, then we start to behave that way too. That yeah. we, we act for the good without concern for what's going to happen to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's – we still do it prudentially. But yeah. par- part of the equation of figuring out what's prudent isn't that something bad could happen to us. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. We have one more question that's related to Romans. And then I think we'll wrap up after this question. So this is from Mal and Joe. These are a couple different questions. So in light of Romans 8, 15 and 16, why do some followers of Christ still struggle with assurance of their salvation? And then the follow-up with that is, if someone fears for the status of their salvation, how can this passage offer any assurance? 
So why don't I read those two verses so everybody's on yeah. the same page? It's 8, 15, and 16, which says, I'll start in verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption into sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are God's children. So the idea here is is that um, you've received a spirit that is the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, and that spirit isn't supposed to produce fear like it would if it was lording it over someone like a slave, motivating out of fear, but instead the spirit has brought you into the adoption of being the child of God. And so it's you're being motivated by the fact that you are an heir, right? And then it says the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So that seems to teach that the Holy Spirit himself, someplace in what we'd call our spirit, our internal spiritual consciousness or whatever, is be, he's speaking to that, that we are God's children. And that sounds like what that should produce then is then assurance. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, now, I, I think there's a couple things that you could say about that. The first is, is that in explaining a verse that seems to be problematic in any way, you shouldn't explain it in a way that explains it away. You don't mm-hmm. explain a verse in a way that explains what the verse plainly says away. So it does, this passage is teaching that the spirit does testify with our spirit that we're children of God. If we're children of God, right? right. And relative to the other things it says in this passage, right? So for example, the very next words in verse 17 are, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, co-heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. Above that, there's a specific emphasis on whether or not we are operating in the mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit, right? And so this statement in verse 16 bears in it the assumption that we are Mm -hmm. embracing by faith verses 1 to 15. Right. So if a person who, who has professed faith in Jesus, right, but is operating in the like end of Romans seven realm where they've acknowledged God is right. They've even acknowledged Jesus as savior. They have not embraced the work of the spirit for their transformation, but instead what they're doing is holding on to the world in, in operating in the the mind of the flesh is what this calls. And therefore giving indwelling sin full reign. Then what this says is is that in that state you can't please God, you'll be hostile to God, and you're actually not even a ch- you can't even be a child of God, mm-hmm. right? And so part of what has to happen is there if this is the reason why they don't feel it, there needs to be an operativeness of faith in which the person actually comes into a relationship with the Spirit, in which they let go of the mind of the flesh and they actually embrace the mind of the Spirit. And when that happens, in addition to faith in Jesus. When faith in Jesus, they recognize the purpose of that is to be formed into the likeness of God's Son, Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, the working and presence of the Spirit. The main operative way that happens in us consciously is that we give our mind to the work of the Spirit and we mm. we put to death the deeds of the body. When that is an operation, what happens, it, one of the things that the Spirit does is confirms that we're children of God takes us out of operation on the basis of fear and into the operation on the basis of being a child of God. And what that means is, is that our spirit is testified within ourselves by the spirit that we're God's children. 
but it's still within like I would say the importance the important way to read verse 16 is to read it as part of Romans 8. Mm-hmm. And the emphasis of Rome on Romans 8 is sanctification. It's it's becoming godly or being transformed so the the one of the interesting verses in this chapter is in verse Verses 20, 28 and 29, people often just focus on the word predestination in 29 and that God works for the good of those who love him in 28. But it's what 29 says is for God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters or many brothers is literally what it says, right? And he says, mm-hmm. and those he predestined, he also called and those he called, he also justified those he justified, he also glorified. When people read that, they usually focus on what they, what theologians call the order salutis or the order of salvation. How does salvation happen? And then they mm-hmm. see the word predestined and they fixate on that. Well, does that mean God predestines people? What does that mean? And then they want to get in a big philosophical discussion on how predestination works. Okay. Sure. The point of that verse is, Right. What it, what it actually says is, for those God foreknew, he also predestined, prepositional phrase, to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What this says is, is that the will of God is actually this, the will of God that God is working in verse 28 for our good, that's also his will, is that you and I by being those who love God and are called according to his purpose would be conformed to the image of his son mm-hmm. so that Jesus, the son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So the whole point of this is God's ultimate goal that he's working for. He's calling people into he's predestining is that human beings would be transformed or conformed to the image of his son. We would become just like Jesus. Yeah. Right. Right. And now he says, now given that that's God's, true final end purpose, right? Those he predestines for that end, he of course is going to call because they have mm-hmm. to come to Jesus. He's of course going to justify them because they have to be made right with God, reconciled to him and counted righteous so that they can be under God's protection and in his and reconcile them and all that, right? And receive the spirit. And those who receive those things he will bring to the end and ultimately glorify. Right. But the perp the point of verses 29 and 30 is not the order of salvation. It's that the people is that what God is doing is making a ch- co-heirs with Christ by mm-hmm. conforming them to the image of his son. That's the end goal. That's everything. Now, in order to achieve that, all these other constituent parts of salvation have to then happen. God calls, God predestines, God foreknows, God justifies, and God glorifies. But in the end, what God wants is glorified right. children heirs of Christ who are in the image of his son. Yeah. Right. That's what he wants. And so I think when you recognize that that's the goal of God, if you commit yourself in faith fully to that goal, that you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ himself. And that the spirit is going to do that work of confirmation in you. And you give yourself to the mind of the spirit and you invite yourself and you invite the spirit in and you begin to walk in that way. What begins to happen is as the mind of the flesh is weakened, then its voice in you to fear and to sin and all those things begins to be weakened and killed. Mm-hmm. And what then proceeds is the voice of the spirit affirming that you're a child of God. If you look at it and, and, it, and so if you look at Romans eight as a, not a process in any way, but as an immediate act, and then you say, well, then why isn't the spirit speaking this right now? That's going to seem like you're not receiving a promise. Right. 
But I think you need to see it as a process with God's end goal in mind and in the context of the whole of chapter seven and eight and what God is doing. Right. And so if somebody isn't experiencing that assurance, I would say, go back to Romans seven, eight, read back through it and look at what it means to give yourself to the spirit to escape condemnation and to become more than a conqueror in the mind of the spirit and mm-hmm. give yourself fully to that. And then read Romans 12 and the applicational description of that in Romans 12 and begin to walk that out in faith. And I think what you'll experience is an increasing testimony of the spirit in your spirit that you are in fact truly a child of God. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask a related question, but it's going to feel a little bit unrelated. So you just, you went through a lot of chapter eight that was really helpful to see, oh yeah, that's right. If you have to understand these verses in the context of the entirety of the chapter, I, I thought of, um, verse 23 as well, where again, he talks about how the adoption to sonship is the redemption of our bodies. And like, you have to see the theme through the whole thing. Okay. But what if you're someone who's listening to this podcast right now and who's like, I have no idea how to understand that all of that is going on in Romans chapters seven, eight, and then later in 12, like someone who's new to reading their Bible. um, Can you just give a couple of Mm -hmm. tips for starting to read your Bible? to see these sorts of things. So, so the question is, can I give some tips on how to read the Bible for these ends? Yeah. To someone who's Um, new to reading their Bible. Yeah, sure. I think the most important is it's going to take concentration. But then I think for epistles like this, where the author is discoursing rather than telling a story, I think the most important thing is to recognize that the person is making a sustained argument, an argument that is going through chapters and verses and he's building it. And you can't just pull verses out where you're just going to confuse yourself. Just like if I spoke for, if you spoke to me for like a minute and I just pull that, you know how people do this sometimes, like you'll talk to them for like two minutes and they will pull one objectionable phrase you set out. And that's, and they will just talk for three minutes just on that one phrase that has very little to do with what you just said. And it's very clear that all they were listening for was something that they could attack, right? Sometimes we read the Bible kind of like that, where we're just reading it for something we can pull out that appears to be something that would minister to us. And so we look at verse 16, and we're like, oh, that's that's beautiful, except I don't feel it happening. Okay, mm-hmm. well, why don't you put it back and go back and look at the whole chapter, but then that chapter is part of a wider argument, which is part of yeah. a wider argument. Yeah. Which ultimately is as wide as the whole book of Romans, right? Yeah. And so I would say, I just, I remember that. I remember being 19 and sitting by the Beaver River and reading How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and him talking about epistles and saying, look, it's not about the verses, just this verse, that verse, this verse, that. It's about an argument. And you have to follow the reasoning. And the more carefully you follow the reasoning, and the more you understand the assumptions in each line, you understand you're listening to one side of a conversation. He's writing to real people with particular concerns. And you try to work that out, the more you'll understand. Yeah. And I just, I totally found that to be true. Yeah. That the more I read the Bible like that, I read epistles for their argument. Mm-hmm. I stopped bringing what I thought to the epistle. I got more of what it was saying to me and it yeah. began to transform my thinking. And yeah. I just got a lot more out of it. So I think for epistles, yeah, like discourse good. like this, that's the biggest thing is to, mm-hmm. you're, it's going to take concentration because you got to follow an argument and then believe there's an argument there and try to follow it. Yeah. And don't just try to pick out verses. Try to understand paragraphs and sections. Mm-hmm. One thing that um, 
I found to be helpful when I first started learning these sorts of things was I realized that I could understand the if I was going to study a book, if I read the whole thing through before I studied it, it helped me to do that a little bit more. So even if you're if you're someone who likes listening to things, maybe you do because you're listening to this podcast, you can download the the Bible app and you can just listen to that entire book a few times before you dive in to study it. And that can be really helpful to pick up on themes and repetition and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All the books of the Bible were written to be heard orally read. Mm-hmm. Right, because books were incredibly expensive. There was no printing press. The average person couldn't afford a single book. And so documents like this are read out orally at church services and stuff like that. So all the Bible is actually meant to be heard out loud. And some people that talk about studying the Bible will say, when you read your Bible, read it out loud. Mm-hmm. It does aid in concentration, but it's also written for oral communication. Yeah. And it, that's very different than reading a newspaper article. Mm-hmm. When Scott reads his Bible, he listens to it as he's reading it. And that's how he just prefers to listen to it or to read it, study it. Yeah. All right. Well, I, why don't we wrap up there? I'm sure there'll be more questions. Again, if we didn't get to your question or if you have, if this spread on more, you can always email at us at email us at podcasts at highpointchurch.org. And um, we're, we hope this is helpful. See you later. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.